Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the International Literature Festival Dublin's podcast. This week we're rewinding back to 2013 for a festival event featuring Rebecca Solnit, interviewed here by John Hutchinson. Thank you all so much for skipping a sunny afternoon for me, and I hope it'll still be going on when we leave. Uh, it's a huge honor and kind of astonishing for a California girl to end up talking in the world capital of eloquence and storytelling like this. And, uh, you know, so it's very, it's amazing to be here. And this is a book itself about storytelling. And I thought I'd read a little bit from the beginning, uh, which kind of sets things up for talking about this book. I don't think most of you have had a chance to see. It's just out, but there are copies now. What's your story? It's all in the telling. Stories are compasses in architecture. We navigate by them. We build our sanctuaries and our prisons out of them. And to be without a story is to be lost in the vastness of a world that spreads in all directions like Arctic tundra or sea ice. To love someone is to put yourself in their place, we say, which is to put yourself in their story or figure out how to tell yourself their story. Which means that a place is a story and stories are geography and empathy is first of all an act of imagination, a storyteller's art, and then a way of traveling from here to there. What is it like to be the old man silenced by a stroke, the young man facing the executioner, the woman walking across the border, the child on the roller coaster, the person you've only read about, or the one next to you in bed? We tell ourselves stories in order to live or to justify taking lives, even our own, by violence or by numbness and the failure to live. Tell ourselves stories that save us and stories that are the quicksand in which we thrash and the well in which we drown. Stories of justification, of accursedness, of luck and star-crossed love, or versions clad in the cynicism that is at times a very elegant garment. Sometimes the story collapses and it demands we recognize we've been lost or terrible or ridiculous or just stuck. Sometimes change arrives like an ambulance or a supply drop. Not a few stories are sinking ships and many of us go down with these ships even when the lifeboats are bobbing all around us. In the Thousand and One Nights, known in English as the Arabian Nights, Shahrazad tells stories in order to keep the Sultan in suspense from night to night so he will not kill her. The back story, of course, is that the Sultan caught his queen in the embrace of a slave and decided to sleep with a virgin every night and slay her every morning so that he could not be cuckolded again. Shahrazad volunteered to try to end the massacre and did so by telling him stories that carried over from one night to the next for nights that stretched into years. She spun stories around him that kept him in a cocoon of anticipation from which he eventually emerged a less murderous man. In the course of all this telling, she bore three sons and delivered a labyrinth of stories within stories. Stories of desire and deception and magic, of transformation and testing. Stories in which the action in one freezes as another storyteller opens his mouth. Pregnant stories, stories to stop death. We think we tell stories, but stories often tell us. Tell us to love or to hate, to see or be blind. Often, too often, stories saddle us, ride us, whip us onward, tell us what to do, and we do it without questions, without questioning. The task of learning to be free requires learning to hear them, to question them, to pause and hear silence, to name them, and then to become the storyteller. 
Those ex-virgins who died were inside the Sultan's story. Shahrazad, like a working-class hero, seized control of the means of production and talked her way out. Sometimes the key arrives long before the lock. Sometimes a story falls into your lap. Once about a hundred pounds of apricots fell into mine. They came in three big boxes, and to keep them from crushing one another under their weight or from rotting in close quarters, I spread them out on a sheet on the plank floor of the bedroom. There they presided for some days, a story waiting to be told, a riddle to be solved, and a harvest to be processed. They were an impressive sight, a mountain of apricots in every stage, from hardened green to soft and browning, though most of them were that range of shades we call apricot. Pale orange with blushes of rose and yellow gold zones, upholstered in a fine velvet, not as fuzzy as peaches, not as smooth as plums. The ripe ones had the faint, sweet perfume, particular to that fruit. I had expected them to look like abundance itself, and they looked instead like anxiety, because every time I came back, there was another rotten one or two or three or dozen to call, and so I fell to inspecting the pile every time I passed by, instead of admiring it. The reasons why I came to have a heap of apricots on my bedroom floor are complicated. They came from my mother's tree, from the home she no longer lived in, and the summer when a new round of trouble began. Hmm. Thank you. It's probably not completely appropriate to discuss the book in any detail, because I doubt that many of us here have read it, but I think the one or two themes which we might just start with. It was described in, in the blurb, and you've, even the extract you've just read does give this uh, impression. It's been described as a personal narrative about storytelling and empathy. But when I read it, well, of course, I, I, I did draw that from it. The, the two things that kept turning up throughout the book, and the book has a lot of very different and unusual references from Frankenstein to Che Guevara, from Iceland to various other places. But the two recurring themes, one is, is your mother, and the other are the apricots. It, yeah. It, it, the apricots seem to come right They were hard the to get rid of. They're hard to get rid of, yeah. <laughs> and you try and preserve them, and you try yeah. and you don't know what to do with them. Somehow they, they, they symbolize a lot, and they seem to symbolize in a way, as I think the extract you've just read us suggests, they symbolize your mother in some deep sense. Well, they were a gift, literally a gift from my mother's tree, and my mother was not particularly generous towards me, so hundred, this hundred pounds of fruit from a tree I'd never had an apricot from before, my younger brother actually picked them, was this extraordinary thing. And it was just so unwieldy and so excessive. It made me think of fairy tales in two ways. One is those magical gifts you get, five beans that will grow up to the sky, you know, the talking horse, the key to an unknown door, uh, the word of power. And But they also reminded me of fairy tale tasks, the room of straw you have to weave into gold overnight or be killed. 
uh, the, the heap of grain you have to, again, sort out overnight on pain of death, that, of course, the ants, because you've befriended them, come and befriend you, because a, a nest of ants can do this in ways you can't. So they were a fairy tale task and a fairy tale gift. They made me start reading fairy tales. And, of course, and they also felt like a huge allegory in some sense. And, the, and they came, they meant in a lot of different things as the next few years progressed. And at the very end, when I finished the book, I realized what they'd been most of all was an invitation to tell stories I'd never told before about my relationship to my mother. Not in the classic memoir sense. One of the things I love about the British edition is that it lists the book as memoir slash anti-memoir. And anti-memoir, because I'm not, because the current bout of, you know, does bout sign like disease? Maybe it should. The current bout of memoir makes me crazy because I don't, I'm not interested in that kind of solipsism, that kind of storytelling, which is about the purely personal, about the sense of self we've gotten from therapy. So it's really an invitation to tell stories and to think about stories, to think about the way my relationship to my mother was built out of stories, and as she lost her memory, would be unbuilt and become something different. And, you know, and ultimately, the apricots at the very end, and when I finished the book, as I was saying, seemed like an invitation to tell those stories that I'd never been free to tell before. But apricots it, can do a lot of work for you. But it's a darker book than I expected. Maybe the, in some senses, the darkest book of yours that I've read. I found it a painful book in some respects, too. The other theme that runs through it is, is illness, both your, your mother's and... And your, mine and, your and, own. and everybody else's. And everybody else's. Other than that, yeah. So, I mean, while I mean, you, you've described this, the, you know, the storytelling again and the, and the, the fairy stories, that, I confess that wasn't what I was left with at the end. It was something much more psychological than that. Would, would that be a misreading of the book? N it wouldn't. And it's interesting, when I, write, when I write some of my more didactic books, my book about disaster, something like that, my book about walking, I always feel like I know exactly what I've done. With this book, it feels much more like poetry. You've put things together, you know what you think you're doing, but you don't know what other people will think as a result, you know? So it's an invitation. I, I spend a lot of time around visual artists, and I often feel like something like TV is so predetermined that tells you exactly what's going on. You don't have to think about it afterwards. It's sort of prepackaged. A work of visual art, does very little, demands that you do so much work with it that you have to think, decide how to view it when you've, when you've viewed it, what it means, and fit it into a context of whatever culture you have around it. And this book feels like it's more towards that end of the spectrum. Writing can be at either end, and that, you know, it's really up to the reader in some ways to make something of it. But it is about illness. My mother had Alzheimer's, I had a sort of minor brush with breast cancer, and um, while a friend of mine had just had a 2.2 pound premature baby, and another friend of mine was dying of breast cancer that had metastasized in her brain, and was affecting her in ways that were quite a bit like my mother's trajectory. Che Guevara was a terrible uh, sufferer of asthma, and he really found his vocation as a revolutionary among the poor, the ill, and the lepers of South America. You know, Frankenstein is also a story about a doctor and about medical meddling in the body and repulsion and attraction and beauty. So there's a lot of those things in it. And, uh, you know, and these other stories were a way of thinking through my own story. 
and of making it hopefully not just my own story, but this question of how you think through these basic things, your parents, your, the way you tell your stories, the sense of self, because the remarkable thing for me about illness, you know, it's a, it's a curse, not a blessing, but it can do what spiritual work does, which is to dissolve your sense that you're this autonomous, independent, uh, self-contained person. You know, you may literally take somebody else's blood or kidney or bone marrow in, become dependent on others to take care of you. There's all these ways you become interfused with the world. And, you know, that the interior of your body becomes visible literally through x-rays and scans and surgeons go in there and inspect you and things. And so you're literally opened up like a book. Just doctors read you, you read yourself. And uh, it destroys, in, I think, a really interesting way, the sense of self that most of us bounce around with that's a fictional or you're convenient but not particularly real. And does that link in at all and Buddhism crops up again regularly yeah, through the book? It I mean, does. Is that sense of non-self in any way related to the Buddhist idea absolutely, of non-self? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think in two ways. One is the Buddhist idea of non-separation is something you can come to through illness. And I used to joke at points that my mother's Alzheimer's was uh, Buddhism through brain damage which doesn't, doesn't sound particularly nice in public. But she really lost that attachment to the pet. We spend most of our lives kind of, you know, being sort of recycling, regurgitating the past and being anxious about the future and not quite being present. And so much of her resentment towards me was this burden of narratives about what a daughter should be, what a mother should be, what a family should be, what, what, what a woman should look like, what I should look like, what she should look like, etc. And when she lost all those stories, it was different. So, so Buddhism, in some sense, is the non-attachment and the sense of deep connection, and also as another sense of self and another sense of purpose. You know, there is... I find the memoir as a child of psychology, which I always say beget the only form of storing you have to the only form of storytelling you have to pay someone to listen to, mm. you know, which is what therapy is. You pay someone $100 an hour to listen to you talk about, you know, direct to you as you talk about, you know, your tribulations. Buddhism gives you a, and like, and religion in a, I, I think more generally, gives you another sense of your life. Maybe that it has a larger purpose. Maybe that suffering, you know, refines you in this, what Keats called this veil of soul making. You know, so it gives you, a radically different sense of what you're here for than the sense that you're here to get all the good things and live happily ever after. It says that, you know, it says in very polite Buddhist terms, fuck that shit, it doesn't work, and it's not what we're here for, and it won't make you happy. So I've, you know, I find it an extraordinary compass to navigate by it. It's a big part of my life. The other theme which I took from it, well, not really a theme so much as a tone, when I would think it's it's typical sonnet in a way, is this a tension or dichotomy between rootedness and wandering. It's always seems to be moving between those two two poles. I mean even I mean you were just saying before we came in how much you liked the Bay Area in San Francisco and you've lived most of your life there. And yet Certainly in the books, you're, you're, you're moving all the time. Is this, is this a dichotomy that strikes you at all? You know, I was actually, I think, my work on travelers in Iceland and nomads generally, that made me realize that 
There's this whole ridiculous version of nomads that we got in the 90s when there were nomad tattoo parlors and it was a very hip word. A lot of nomads have a winter camp and regular, mm. regular places they go. And, you know, I'm not quite like that, but San Francisco is definitely a home base and I don't feel like you have to be either or, you choose both. And the title of the book, The Far Away Nearby, uh, beautiful line from George O'Keefe, you know, uh, you know, I think describes that, but also the way that you can be next to someone, close to someone, related to someone, living with someone, and not know them at all, or you can have a profound communion with somebody you only know, you know, by letter, or, you know, at a distance, or over time as you read their work, and it guides you in some ways. So the sense, you know, of emotional distance and closeness, and geographical distance and closeness, and all the different ways that they work together and work against each other is an important part of the book. I mean, implicit in the title and in that dichotomy is, is possibly a, a quest for wholeness of a certain sort. Um, and I don't think you're one for conclusions as such or, or linear narratives yeah. in that way. And yeah. yet, again, just piecing together bits and pieces I was reading of the interviews you've, you've done, some people have described your work or your writing as a kind of tapestry, which is, would be yeah. typically a, a feminine activity. Other people have said it's a kind of mapping, which would be conventionally a more of a male activity. And I was wondering what the, where, do they join in a form of pattern making of some sort? Is this, I mean, your interest in, yeah, in, you the, know, in those? A quilt I'm actually, there's a uh, patchwork quilts are a very American thing, and I really fell in love with them when I realized that they're very much like maps. There are these horizontal surfaces, which made me realize when you sleep under a patchwork quilt, maybe you're dead because it's the surface of the earth that you're tucking yourself under. But I'm actually, I've just completed my second atlas. I think it went to press on th Friday, you know. Um, I'm not sure who I should pray to to be sure that that's so. It's been quite an ordeal. But so I've been really interested in mapping, and which is about finding out how things are in relationship to each other up close or at a distance. These kind of constellations you can spell out spatially, but that also are really meaningful to me. Met uh, constellation is one of the metaphors I operate with all the time, but my relationship to this place and to that place, the way that this informs you know, this p person, the way that you can, what happens when you think about Frankenstein and Buddhism. You know, these constellations that I, I feel, you might be a third metaphor that's neither tapestries nor no maps, maps, but no. this third thing that's sort of both. And I actually know an amazing artist you should show sometime who has done all these geographical uh, and sort of cosmological quilts around that things and has incredible... Uh, talent, you know, she's marked exactly where the stars were at certain historical moments and things. And, but so that making of constellations, a relationship between things near and far, and the way you navigate by them, I think has been really important to my work. And this ability to draw things together that are not necessarily ordinarily associated. And this is a book really where stories are what I navigate by. You know, I tell, I revisit Frankenstein, which is really a, a parent-child story with Frankenstein that uh, also a doctor, I might note, who rejects his child, who turns on him and on life in some sense. You know, but the child that is really a part of himself, the monstrous self, he won't name and recognize and claim. So it goes, you know, and it's the unacknowledged that goes berserk. You know, Che Guevara, you know, all these stories became ways of thinking through 
these larger questions about empathy and storytelling and relation, you know, so they're, they were how I navigate. I hope they're useful for other people to navigate as well. The way that the kinds of stories I told in Field Guide were, which was a book literally about navigation and its opposite about the uses of getting lost. But you seem to like space a lot, uh, wide yeah. spaces. Some, either yeah. you or someone described your writing, I mean, you as a, a writer of the American West, yeah. with all that that implies. And there was something else which I, I saw which intrigued me, um, and I'm not sure I completely understand it. You said you were, you were an anti-miniaturist, which again relates to this idea of space. This is a very American thing to say. It, you, know? you know, I think you can... You know, you can think big from Dublin. You think There's, so? Oh, yeah. You listen. Yeah. Well, yes. okay. Uh, 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 James Joyce had to think big from, some, uh, you know, from, was it Yugoslavia? Where was that? Triet, from Trieste to think about Dublin. Maybe you can, uh, you know, sometimes you have to go far away to see the things near at hand. And one thing I actually, I think I actually discovered it around Crowpatrick, that you don't see the mountain when you're on the mountain, you see the mountain when you're far away from the mountain. You wrote a book about Ireland, didn't you? I did, a book of migrations. Mm. That was about, you know, I have an Irish passport for some damn reason, because we all subscribe to the belief that you are who you're descended from. But I'm really kind of a bioregionist. I believe I'm a Californian. And that sense of space uh, you know, does inform my work. I've gotten used to really vast spaces that are very different than the East Coast. You know, I have, I just visited a friend who's 89 and lives 70 miles from the nearest grocery store. And to get there, you drive through all these valleys that are, you know, maybe 50 miles long and 15 or 20 miles wide that will have two families living in them. You know, that's a really, and I, I came to that space more as an adult, but that's, you know, but I was—I grew up on the edge of it. The West Coast is sort of the, you know, the East and West Coast are the parentheses enclosing the continent, and that's part of the kind of unspoken interior, the outback. But it—but it's been really, you know, it's a liberatory space and an overwhelming space, and it's been important to me. I like that—that that room. But also, I think anti-miniaturist, and that I want to be able to connect things. I want to be able to think. Think my story through in you know through Iceland, through the Arctic, through Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft. You know I want I want lots of room, and I refuse. You know it's a sort of refusal to be confined, also to the linear narrative, which is you know, and partly because I'm incapable of linearity, I'm deep, I'm very associative, and partly and that's that's that act of constellating. I think it's actually how you connect things, and it's much more interesting for me that way. When I wrote my book on walking, I said if an academic field can be imagined as a real field, a rectangle with a, a carefully tilled rectangle with a hedge around it and, and ownership, then the history of walking trespasses through myriad fields you know, in the quest to understand the subject. So I've also always been kind of a rover and a trespasser intellectually, uh, you know, and that, you know, I, and it's to tell a story that I think is whole and coherent, but that it can't be confined to that particular field or that particular linearity. Mm, I was looking for something here which Maybe you I'm said once, geometry. which is, I think, related to that. You once said that you thought your role as a writer was, quote, to make wide-ranging connections and lateral moves, which again is a, is a certain spaciousness in the way you approach things. If I was capable of singing, which I'm not, which proves that I'm not really that Irish, I'd sing Don't Fence Me In. 
but uh, yeah, I think my other per another one of my ongoing vocations, something that comes up over and over again, is to value what can't be measured. My friend Chip Ward, an environmental writer, uses the phrase "the tyranny of the quantifiable," which I feel like is one of the afflictions of our time. You know, to address something like climate change, you have to do what my friend Bill McKibben has tried to do, which is convince us that our lives would actually be richer if we adjusted, richer in connection and purpose, in relationality, in groundedness, in place, in all kinds of quality and quality of time and uh, things like that. Right now, we're just richer in disposable clothes and jet skis and uh, you know and things like that. And um, I think you know, that's so one that of the, well. uh, the unusual things about you as a writer and as a thinker is that, I mean, typically postmodernism makes these lateral associations through doubt of the possibility yeah. of an overarching narrative. But with you, with your activism and your environmental interests, you have that breadth of association plus a sense of commitment, which is not typical of postmodern thinking, I would, I would suppose. Yeah, well... Where do, where do you position... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of what's, you know, like what's wrong with them. It's a, you know, it's a more interesting and hopeless. It's interesting because I wrote a book about hope that came out. Actually, my essay about my original essay about hope that changed my life. I started writing for the website Tom Dispatch, which is this amazing thing that works like a wire service. It distributes all over the world. Created a friendship with the best editor I've ever worked with. He's it's like a, he's like this great dance partner. I can dance better with him than with anyone, you know. And this extraordinary reach. And writing about hope was you know. Such an interesting uh, contrarian thing to do is just as Bush's war in Iraq was breaking out because people fell into despair. And there is a certain way for those of us who are comfortable in the first world that despair is an easy out. You know, if you're starving and you're going to be annihilated by genocide, despair means you just accept that that's going to happen to you and you die or you suffer hideously. You absolutely need to hope to escape and something like that. And somebody I quoted in the book that grew out of that essay I published 10 years ago, uh, 10 years and one week ago, said, uh, without hope there's no struggle, but without struggle there's no hope. But for those of us who are affluent, hopelessness means that you watch more bad television and let yourself off the hook. It's other people that you have to do things for, not, not your immediate circumstances. You know, despair isn't going to lead to you being annihilated or enslaved. So, you know, postmodernism as a some of the deconstruction, the ability to look at fundamental structures and critique them, and you know, as a kind of post-colonialist and post-patriarchal you know, kind of methodology was just extraordinarily powerful and valuable for me. But the kind of easy cynicism was just, you know, disposable and silly and frivolous. You know, it doesn't get you any place interesting. It doesn't get you any place. Turning from except a moment, just except to, tenure, of course. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, so turning for a moment to the, I mean, the craft of writing, you had an unusual, you had a, a fairly a, a rough journey through high school, I gather, and uh, then you off you no went journey, to Paris. Yeah, no journey through high school. Actually. No journey through high school. Okay, yeah. then you go to Paris, then back to the West Coast. You do a journalism. Or something. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. I did an undergraduate degree in literature and I have a master's in journalism from Berkeley. Okay. But you started but, uh, off writing about music and visual a arts? A little bit of, a little bit. Yeah, actually. And you were a punk? 
I was. I was. Punk rock sort of saved my life. It was a realm that was as full of angst and fury and acceleration as I was at 15 and 16. And maybe it, and books really saved my life in a much bigger sense from the week I learned how to read till, you know, I, I put down the last thing I read to come here. But, um, yeah, you know, it was the 70s and nobody was paying much attention in California, so I just managed to evade high school, start college early, get the hell out of California because I knew the world was bigger than suburbia. And Parisians, I often wish I'd moved to Dublin or Barcelona or someplace where people are a bit nicer than Parisians. <laughs> At, um, but it was an amazing place. And then in graduate school, I had a job at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art doing research and working on the permanent collection. And that led me to be an art critic. And that was a huge part of my education. A lot of my artists, a lot of my friends are still visual artists. And that's just been a fantastic education. Artists ask bigger, deeper questions than almost anyone else. I think of, I'm sure that's why you went from philosophy to visual art. I think of visual art as philosophy through material means. And artists ask these fundamental questions about making and materiality, about production and consumption and perception, about value and the arena in which people perceive. You know, and now art is almost anything done with that kind of consciousness. Artists are, you know, social interventionists and everything else. Whereas writing, you know, is relatively predictable in what it does. So I'm always glad that I didn't come through a conventional literature route, but had this, this, and I can think of that as, a, you know, I'm describing that as a wide open space, in a sense. I guess I'm just inevitably hark back to, you know, steps and prairies Are you, you and fast writer? And things. What? Are you fast writer? I am. I am, much to everyone else's annoyance. But the part of why I've made a living at it for 25 years more with a little bit of teaching here and there is because I've been really productive. I always feel like a bad example to the young because people sometimes think, oh, I want to be her. And I'm like, you don't want to be me for the first 15 years I was doing this because it was not very remunerative and uh, and I really had to produce. And I'm still... still you occasionally feel like some sort of Dickensian word factory grinding out, you know, a lot of product. But yeah, I'm productive, Ben, I'm fast. Yes, yeah, so I was just again looking for another Sometimes. quote here. Someone described your writing as having both heart and teeth, which I thought was a good yeah. good combination yeah. of the see the, the the activism and the But going going back to the book, um your and and its and its sources and and your mother runs through it. Your mother had, your father was Jewish, and you travelled. Yeah, as he was a yes, he was a wanderer and a Jew, and child of immigrants. So, so that rootedness and the, the yeah. moving is a cultural thing as much as a physical yeah. thing, perhaps, is it? I actually think of it's interesting. My father had the sort of Jewish refugee sense, and so much of Jewish culture. Why they were, you know, a lot of white Jews did. Uh, professional work is because you can take being a doctor or a lawyer or a jeweler with you. You can't take property with you and in some places Jews couldn't own property. And he was incredibly restless, didn't connect well to other people, traveled a lot, actually died in uh, Jordan and is buried in Israel. Um, he died 26 years ago while he was traveling around the world. Uh, my mother was very, very, very Irish. She thought she was an ex-Catholic. But um, I don't think Catholicism ever, you know, she lost her faith in some ways. But um, although I had the most wonderful radical priest come in and give her last rites, 
uh, a Franciscan who only wears his collar to get arrested. He's close to our family. And, um, but she was also very much an Irish peasant. She believed in land. She did very well. The reason she had such a comfortable last five years of her life is that she bought a house very wisely that appreciated tenfold that we sold to pay for her care. And she was, you know, she was a gardener. She was very attached to her trees, including that apricot tree into place. And didn't move uh, once she got rid of my father. You know, she bought this house and stayed there for 35 years. But your father doesn't crop up in your writing that I've noticed, or does he's he? He's a bit in, he's at the very end of Field Guide, and okay. not very nicely. And, um, <laughs> you know, but actually nicely in a way. You know, it's this moment where I realized that this awful thing he did to me, he was an urban planner, and the county I grew up in, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, went through this tremendous battle in the 1960s and 1970s to protect the open space, which is uh, territory for a lot of very endangered species like elephant seals and just remarkably rich habitat. And it's this amazing thing um, a huge amount of open space that's still dairy farms and wilderness within sight of a major, you know, on the edge of a major metropolitan area. He was the urban planner who wrote the master plan that protected all that. And it was when I was reading a book about 15 years ago that I realized that he was in mesh, he was going to these meetings on weekday evenings where he was fighting with the developers, he was under attack a lot. And that's part of why he was so intemperate during my childhood. And I realized that the house I'd grown up in had been hell of a sorts, but in, in a small temporary personal hell that he'd preserved this place I've been enjoying the rest of my life, which is a kind of paradise. And it was a kind of, for, a kind of reconciliation to realize that the good he'd done far outweighed the evil and that I was a beneficiary of the former. So that's, that's where he's appeared in my writing. And it's funny because he's, you know, I write about cities a lot. I'm doing these atlases of cities and things. And he was an urbanist, but died before I really took that up. Hmm. And I'm not sure it would have been safe to take it up while he was alive. I mean, the, the two writers seem to be most crop up in conversations, of, I think your conversations about your work too, uh, John Berger on the one hand, yeah. and Susan Sontag on the other. Are they, are they two, are they really linchpins or guiding lights? Berger much more than Sontag, partly because he's a passionately committed uh, radical yeah. and a beautiful writer and also an art critic. And so I, I'm always thrilled when people demonstrate that you can have that kind of range. So in more than Sontag, I'd say, you know, Walter Benjamin, Virginia Woolf, Gary Snyder, uh, Subcomante Marcos, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, who's sort of amazing lapidary, kind of experimental essays first demonstrated for me how creative nonfiction could be because I was sort of tending towards that, but I didn't know it. I was reading actually My Countrywoman, Pauline Kael, the great film critic, grew up one town from me. You know, and nobody else ever came from there who did anything cultural, or almost nobody. And, um, you know, so those people really marked out what nonfiction could do as well. and. Uh, what kinds of voices and uh, were possible, what you could talk about. And Sontag less so. You know, as a West Coast Jewish woman who went on to occupy a tremendous place in the culture, she's magnificent, but I don't feel that connected to what she did. I got compared to her once, and it's, which is, from a publisher standpoint, is very convenient and flattering. They worked it for all it's worth. And that didn't ple it didn't please you, the association? It didn't displease me at all. You know, it's being compared to somebody who I respect and admire. 
And as an essayist, as a political writer, as a person with tremendous commitment, you I admire and feel connected to her, not so much in matters of style, and in a sense she was very much a Europhile. There was this moment when somebody once told me, brought that up in public, and I was trying to think of why am I not like Susan Sontag, and I said, oh, it's because I'm like Gary Snyder. They're very much the same age, except I saw Gary two weeks ago. He's still very healthy and thriving. He's an outdoorsman. I sometimes joke that he's a forester. He lived, owns 100 acres of forested wood in the mountains and takes care of it himself with a chainsaw. That he's really a forester who writes poetry on the side, not a poet who just happens to own a chainsaw. But he also, as one of the founding beat poets, did this really remarkable thing, which is, you know, when, you, when I was growing up, we were still colonial subjects, particularly on the West Coast, you were a colonial subject of, of New York. And we were, we were told that civilization came from Europe and then came from New York, and there was really none there. Snyder turned towards Native America and towards Asia, and specifically towards Buddhism, to find another set of sources that allowed him to dig very deep into where he is. You know, we literally face Asia, but there's also a, a tremendous Asian population on the West Coast, and it's been a, you know, Japanese and Chinese and South Asian people have been a huge part of my life. It's, you know, it's the norm, and they're not a subsidiary or minority culture. So, and then Native American culture, which has been tremendously important to my work. So Snyder's, again, I think, you know, I keep coming back to opening up, but he opened up what other influences you could, you know, connect to and how you could be a West Coast person. And it's not that I'm not devoted to Virginia Woolf, for example, but, um, you know, and the more subversive identities. And it's wonderful coming to Ireland, or to Dublin from London. I feel like I just left an imperialist for an anti-imperialist capital. And when I first got here, it's like chestnut trees and lilacs, chestnut trees and lilacs, it felt very the same. And then just even walking around and reading the monuments, it's like coming, it's coming from imperialism to anti-imperialism. So, you know, so there are things here I feel connected from, but connecting to those other things was part of being, you know, really rooting myself in the place I'm from and not, uh, you know, not always looking elsewhere for, for culture and feeling that I'm on the outskirts. Of course, in a terrible other way, Silicon Valley is now the power center of the world in a way that creeps me out. I just wrote a very snarky piece about Google and the Google buses that run through San Francisco bringing their privileged workers to their magic campus. And uh, five of the six most used websites in the world, you are 30 miles south of me. And I actually like being an edge more than a center. And I think that being this, the center of the world that I'm now in is really kind of terrifying and uh, for all of us. I, I have one more question and then we can yeah. open it up to people. I don't know why it occurs to me. It was just possibly you were talking before we came in about an interview just done with The Guardian. And yesterday I read an odd, slightly belligerent interview in The Guardian with Patti Smith. What yeah. Do you, do, you have, do you feel any rapport with Oh, I adore Patti Smith, actually. I, I love her music, <laughs> and I love... She's, a ro she's one of the true romantics of our time, and she's so passionately devoted to, if you've read her book, Just Kids, to friendship and solidarity, to music, to the idea of being an artist. You know, there's a real nobility about her, which is a rare a word we don't use much because there, maybe there's not that many people you'd apply it to. She's grumpy, though, isn't she? I, d I you know, I've never met her in person. I've seen her speak. You know, I'm sure in I'm, we all have our foibles in private, yes. but uh, but in public, she's been able, I think, to 
set up a, a romantic idealism in her lyrics and her performances in her generosity towards people like Robert Mapplethorpe and other gestures like that. And, um, you know, I'll have to go look at the Guardian interview and cringe to see what they've done to her and fear whether no, they'll it, do it, it to it, me. No, it was but okay, but it has a strange tone to it. Yeah, it just, There was yeah. a the degree of, um, this guy had flown over from London just to see her and he was complaining that she hadn't fed him and just wouldn't give him a cup of tea and... Oh, mother. <laughs> was she an... Un you know, what, was he expecting nurture? I think so. 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 Typical male, huh? I, you know, I think nurture is a question in most relationships. I suspect uh, so. Yeah, should we start... Should we end there and start... With Let's do that. Let's goes, do that. I'm so... Um, Rebecca, do you want to feel them or will I feel them or we... Well, how, well, how do you want well, to handle it? We'll take them on together. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so... I'll leave um, it to you for now and I'll yeah. butt in if we need to. But be, maybe yeah. there are no questions that we should I'm keep sure talking. There are. But surely I'm there's sure. a... Yeah, he has a question. As a cold place to be. Yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful question, and what a wonderful reference to what's probably now a fairly obscure essay. I used to teach it, although there's a funny moment, speaking of utopianism, about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when my students said, I don't understand, this an essay talks about not being taught about Native, about Americans not being taught about Native Americans in school. And we'd reached a generation where they actually were mostly taught about Native Americans in school, which itself is a sort of utopian arrival. I think, you know, we navigate by utopian ideals the way moths navigate by the moon, you know, and moths misnavigate by flames and fly into them and burn up. The way that I think the attempt to realize utopia has burned people up when it becomes an enforced utopia. But I think that things, you know, my hope lies in the, the fact that the world does change quite dramatically and in measuring that change, which is again a kind of mapping, looking on the large scale, I think that a lot of despair also comes from the sense that the past and the future are very much like the present, which is a kind of amnesia and uh, unimaginativeness. And in fact, they can, you know, if you know how radically women's roles have changed in the last half century, if you know, how, you know how, you know, the the easiest example is when I was born to be gay or lesbian was to be treated as a criminal or mentally ill, or both, if you didn't lead your life in shame and hiding, 
you know, 12 states in the U.S. have now legalized same-sex marriage and um, a dozen other countries around the world. You know, so that to see that things change. I think utopia is an idea that everything should be perfect or it sucks. The binary is incredibly destructive and there's a kind of rancid utopianism among the left, this idea that because everything's not perfect, it's terrible. It's a kind of binaryism where everything that's not black is white, everything that's good is evil. Everyone who doesn't think like me is my enemy. Um, I'm sure you've all encountered, and it's really destructive. Whereas a kind of pragmatic utopianism, that we have these ideals that the world can change, that there are remarkable things that have already happened that we're going to cherish and try to protect and keep from eroding even as we try to you know, uh, work on these other things. You know, is my kind of utopianism. This, this, it's a kind of idealism, but uh, but that's not perfectionism. Uh, I said once, perfection is a stick with which to be beat the possible, and the possible gets beaten a lot with that stick. So I think that you know, utopianism can mean a lot of things. If I'm against the version that's perfectionist and absolutist, I'm for the version that's just hopeful and experimental, and that's grounded in the sense that things do change quite dramatically. And as I really came to understand in my book on disaster, that human nature is mostly fairly generous, fairly communal, fairly creative, fairly uh, altruistic, that you really have to distort it with capitalism and sort of unfair and uh, structures, destructive narratives to create to create selfishness, to create isolation, to create cruelty, you know, those things are manufactured and they serve some people and destroy others, but they're not, you know, they're, I don't believe they're given. So that's a little random sketch of my utopianism. Thank you for a great question. And reminding me of a Californian, as uh, Joan Didion's a Californian, I don't feel much in connection with. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, on the other hand, I admire immensely. And uh, as a feminist, as somebody who's drawn very much from these other cultures, Taoism and Native America, in her case, and her Earthsea books were enormous influences on me when I was young. Other questions? Yeah. What do you mean by that? As in, um, well, I, I, I study maths, so oh. everything is linear uh, for me. Uh, so <coughs> is, you know, if one thing equals one thing plus another thing equals the first thing plus the second thing, rather than the second thing plus the first thing. So I, well, I just don't understand what you mean by association or why it's not. Yeah. <coughs> I guess in the, the social sciences and the arts, linearity means... You know, you see in academia sometimes people are being told that, you know, you're not allowed, you're, you're a historian, not a geographer, so you can't think about this. You're, you know, you're in sociology, not psychology, so you can't think about that. There's a way in which there's a kind of border patrol that keeps people on these straight and narrow paths. And also suggests that your field of knowledge, that, you know, academia often encourages people to specialize, to carve out these very small fields where you're like the ultimate authority on, you know, Flemish battles of the 1480s, but you're not allowed to think about the larger senses of being and politics and power and place and things. And, um, you know, and, I'm, and my work is, has always been kind of interdisciplinary. You know, I was, 
a literary person but grounded in the visual arts who then did a lot of work as an environmental activist and I've always wanted the freedom and kind of given myself whether or not anyone else did to draw from multiple fields. There's a kind of knowledge that I value that's often academic that what I think of as microscopic but I'm interested in you know what you see with your you know with your own eyes or you know the whole field of vision which is broader and which connects things which aren't always connected and also a more metaphorical and poetic sense. We understand things through other things, through metaphors, through allegories, through resemblances. And that means things that, you know, might not be directly connected. And the story of how Che Guevara discovered this deep empathy for the poor and the oppressed through his, his journeys described in the Motorcycle Diaries, which was really a journey from leprosy colony to leprosy colony, how the disease leprosy itself and the way that numbness becomes an affliction and who, f who feels for and refuses to feel for people with such a disfiguring dis and despised disease. You know, that mapped out for me things I really needed to know about empathy and, uh, and connection and separation. And so, you know, to, to, you know, so a story like that becomes a way that I understand things I need to understand for my own life, even though, you know, I'm, I'm not Che Guevara, I don't suffer from leprosy, and I'm not in South America. So it's that kind of non-linearity, the way, you know, what, and yet that sense of kinship with all the people in that story, um, and the way that story can illuminate, you know, my own life, and I hope for those of you who read the book, yours. So that's, that's a non-linearity that matters for me. Maybe it's a sense of connecting, and also taking the meandering, the scenic byways, rather than the kind of superhighway, and, uh, you know, na and navigating that way. It's a nice, sort of, just to interject on that, but the idea of weaving is very nice in terms of linearity, yeah. insofar as it's, you know, you have straight lines, but they, they, they create a, a mesh, so they're going in different directions, so it's a more complicated model of linearity, perhaps. Would that? Yeah, absolutely, and I describe, speaking of maps and lines, and et cetera, my friend Anne Chamberlain, who was dying, you in the, in the course of the year I write about, um, had her last masterpiece was these cast plaster archipelagos with red threads running between them that looked like you know trade routes, flight routes, uh, communications routes, or something like that. The kind of thing you might see in an air, airplane magazine when you open it to the show the flight routes. And we tend to tell our our life story as though you know, and the metaphors often, you know, in Greek fate, in the Buddhist idea of the blood lineage, as though our life is itself linear. But I think we're really more like the the islands in which there are threads going in all directions. You can follow one of them or many of them, or even more, our lives are the under the cloudy mass of wool that the thread is spun from. To spin, we talk about spinning stories. But then we talk as though our story is the thread, and I think our story is really more the cloud in some sense. You know, that we're forever spinning it, but there's this vast cloud. You can't spin it all into a linear narrative. It's always bigger and more sprawling and more amorphous, more, more cloudy, if but more woolly. But con that conventional model of femininity leads to the spinster and the witch. Yeah, I'm Going back I'm to your fairy them. stories, I'm you for them, them right? Yeah, yeah, and the three fates in Greek mythology who spin the thread that's your life, measure it and cut it, which is your death. And I love it that actually yeah. there's a, the three fates are in St. Stephen's Green. It's one of the statues I really like there. And, um, you know, I don't know of any place else that has a sta an actual statue of them. But, 
Yeah, that's, uh, but of course the fates is that sense that your story is a given, but I think we tell our own stories, we spin them, you know, that our lives are this undifferentiated mass. In some ways, you know, there are givens. If you're in a concentration camp, you're definitely in a concentration camp. Although, even there, there is some latitude, um, you know, and you hear people, Primo Levi, who wrote Man's Quest for Meaning, at, um, uh, Victor Frankl, talk about how they navigated it, how skills and attitudes and alliances help them through it, you know, so, you know, what you do with that undifferentiated mass, the, the act of making stories out of it is very much what this book is about, you know, what do you do, how does that opening passage, how does your story, you know, how is it the shackles that pre prevent you from moving freely or the music you dance to, how do you make your story, what is your story, who teaches you what your story is, and what does that give you, is it a gift or a prison? You know, and those are the things I've been really interested in. Is the con and that actually goes back to postmodernism. It's the constructedness of our stories, which in a postmodern term sounds all awful and oh, they're not real, they're artificial, they're socially constructed. But I think in a more poetic sense, it means we're all storytellers. How do you become the teller of your story? Which, which is how I think you liberate yourself sometimes from the stories you've been told about who you are. Oh, you're stupid, oh, you're never, oh, you're not allowed to have this. Oh, you know. Oh, you know. You're unlucky, and your your life has been like this. You know, I like what's called narrative therapy, where people learn to tell another version of their stories, and it's you know this business. But I also think that becoming the storyteller, learning to pause the stories to make the stories visible or audible, to know what stories you're telling about yourself and others, and may and being able to tell other stories to really be conscious about those stories is a profound kind of liberation and um, as opposed to being enslaved by stories which is in some ways the human condition about this is what you need to be happy, this is what you need to be, your unhappy childhood according to pop psychology means that you're going to, you're doomed for life and you know this is what life is for. You know we get all this, this baggage and you know kind of opening up the suitcases and deciding what to keep and what to mend and what to throw out and what to, you know, cut up and remake, you know, is the work we all have to do. But, uh, and with that, I think it's, is there another question or, I think it's three o'clock and now we all depart in the other direction to the bookshop, but... Uh, any, any final Any parting questions, questions or words? I'm happy to... Uh, yes, to there's somebody up the, at the back, Rebecca, up there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that this uh, marriage equality is one of the ways we've retold our stories about what is marriage, what who who has rights, what you know and things like that, and you see it change all the time. What, uh, you know, as cultural stories, I mean, the way women used to be treated is, 
you know, and what marriage used to be was essentially a property relationship, the husband and the wife, that's become unacceptable because we've changed the story on a cultural, a broad cultural scale, not just a national scale. And changing stories, you know, there's stories that still need to be changed. American exceptionalism and manifest destiny, you know, is baggage we still have. And I referred earlier to the way climate change is often narrated by people who don't want us to do anything is like, oh, they're asking you to give up all your toys and privileges. But there's another way you can tell it to say that actually we're very poor now in the quality of our time and the quality of our connection to the systems around us, the people around us, the place we're from. And responding meaningfully to climate change could mean actually deepening all those relationships and being, you know, because we're not going to consume as much, we don't have to produce as much, so we don't have to work as much. Uh, we also might feel more deeply connected to the future we're trying to ensure through our actions and more hopeful about it, rather than just trying not to think about it as we, you know, ransack and sabotage it. So, you know, I think that we're constantly changing the stories. I grew up in the United States. The story was a white person's story. It was about us. And now us has been opened up to include African Americans, Native Americans, and other non-white peoples. And, uh, you know, so those stories are constantly being changed. And part of what made me hopeful 10 years ago was seeing how much around the decade before with Native Americans, that story about Native Americans got changed from, you know, there was, you know, either they never existed and it was a virgin continent that was discovered or terrible things happened in the 19th century and then they were basically wiped out and they were relevant and they no longer exist and we don't have to deal with it, rather than that they're here, they're present, and they radically transform what nature and culture and history and place mean for those of us in the Americas. You know, something I think we've come to terms with. There's been an enormous native cultural resurgence from uh, the I don't know more of movement in Canada to the Zapatistas in Mexico to the first indigenous president in Bolivia and the indigenous resurgence in that native majority country. You know, so stories change all the time and have changed. I don't think they've ever changed more dramatically than in our time. And participating in that change is part of what it's meant to be an activist and to see those stories, see their malleability and transformation, you know, it's been tremendously exciting for me and important and hopeful. And that's probably a good place to end. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh,